Hello, good morning, for it is good morning. You have reached the Triste for Governor Show on the Res with Triste Show for KPYT, Pasquariaki Travel Radio. Your image. And also, shout out to our listener at KAMP Student Radio. Do this show to uh, inform the young people and to light a fire under their arses, their big, fat, morbidly obese arses, video game plan, virtual addicts. Ah, anyway, let's get to it. So yeah, I used to, um, I interned for Amy at Democracy Now! in New York, 2009. I handled their archive, I did their, I digitized their archive of documentaries and music. It's great. Good voiceovers. From New York, this is Democracy Now! My message to the Taliban is to reopen schools for girls as soon as possible. I urge them to keep their word, and I request the international community to pressure the Taliban to reopen our schools. We want to study. As the Taliban cracks down on women's rights and millions of Afghans go hungry, we'll look at life in Afghanistan a year after the Taliban regained power. We'll speak to Matthew Akins of the New York Times about the Taliban's dangerous collision course with the West. Then, a jury in California has convicted a former worker at Twitter of spying for Saudi Arabia by providing the kingdom private information about Saudi dissidents. We'll speak to the sister of an imprisoned Saudi man who was tortured and jailed for running a satirical Twitter account. My brother is a humanitarian aid worker who got kidnapped from his office more than four years ago and was placed under enforced disappearance, uh, brutally tortured, and sentenced to 20 years of imprisonment for tweeting. Plus, we speak to Walden Bello, the longtime Filipino activist and former vice presidential candidate. He was arrested Monday on cyber libel charges just weeks after the inauguration of the Philippines' new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., son of the former U.S.-backed dictator. Bello says his arrest was masterminded by the Philippines' new vice president, Sara Duterte, the daughter of the former president, Rodrigo Duterte. All that and more coming up. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Attorney General Merrick Arlins asked a federal judge to unseal the warrant the FBI used in its August 8th search of former President Donald Trump's estate in Florida. Garland announced the request Thursday as he delivered his first public comment since Trump said the FBI had searched his Mar-a-Lago residence Monday. The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. 
Attorney General Garland said he personally approved the warrant and condemned verbal attacks on the FBI and Justice Department by Trump and his allies. The Washington Post reports the FBI is seeking, among other things, highly classified documents about U.S. nuclear weapons. Hours after Garland's remarks, Donald Trump said in a statement he encouraged the immediate unsealing of the warrant. If Trump is proven to have mishandled classified documents, he could be guilty of a felony. In 2018, then-President Trump signed a bill upgrading the crime from a misdemeanor to a felony while increasing punishments for those who mishandle classified information. In Ohio, mm -hmm. a man wearing body armor and armed with an AR-15-style assault rifle Charging fired a nail gun into an in FBI terrorism. field office in Cincinnati Thursday, prompting a gun battle chase and armed standoff that ended hours later when the gunman was shot dead by police in a cornfield. Officials identified the man as 42-year-old Ricky Schiffer, a supporter of Donald Trump and the far-right Proud Boys. Two days before Thursday's attack on the FBI, Schiffer posted on Trump's truth social online forum calling on allies to quote kill the fbi on site unquote what? schiffer also appears in a video posted to facebook on january 5th 2021 showing him at a pro-trump rally in washington dc the night before the assault on the capitol and he boasted online he was at the insurrection That's inciting the fbi's execution of a search That's warrant on mar-a-lago last week violence. has spawned extremely violent rhetoric among trump supporters the pro-trump gateway pundit website declared this means war a message echoed by trump's former top political advisor steve bannon who declared the fbi is the gestapo unquote uh, today is the fifth anniversary no, of the deadly 2017 no, unite no. the right rally in charlottesville no, virginia no, where a self-described no. neo-nazi slammed his car into a crowd of anti-racist counter-protesters killing heather Heyer and injuring dozens of others A federal court in Washington, D.C. has sentenced a former police officer, Thomas Robertson, to more than seven years in prison over his role in the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. Robertson had served as a police officer in Rocky Mount, Virginia. A month prior to the insurrection, Robertson called for an open-armed rebellion. Another former Rocky Mountain police officer, Jacob Fracker, is being sentenced today. Meanwhile, newly revealed documents show officials of the Department of Homeland Security tried to warn Congress last April that text messages sent by Secret Service agents around the time of the January 6th insurrection were missing. But their attempts were thwarted by the DHS Inspector General Joseph Kafari, a Donald Trump appointee. The revelation prompted renewed calls for Kafari to resign. President Biden has not ruled out firing yeah, how about him. The, joy? <laughs> the Centers for Disease <laughs> Control has further this. relaxed its guidelines on COVID-19. The CDC's new recommendations further shift the onus to individuals rather than public health measures to reduce the risks of catching the disease. The CDC no longer recommends people remain at least six feet apart, no longer recommends quarantine for people who've been exposed to an infected person. On Thursday, a CDC epidemiologist told reporters, quote, we know that COVID-19 is here to stay, unquote. More than 40,000 people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19 across the United States, where the disease continues to kill more than 3,300 people each week. 
The International Atomic Energy Agency is calling on Russia and Ukraine to immediately halt fighting around Europe's largest nuclear power plant. On Thursday, Ukraine reported at least 10 Russian shells exploded near the sprawling Zaporizhia nuclear complex, the latest in a series of attacks that have threatened to trigger a nuclear catastrophe. In Kyiv, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said Thursday Russia had taken the whole world hostage. Russia has again hit the bottom in the world history of terrorism. No one else has used a nuclear power plant so obviously to threaten the whole world and to put forward some conditions. Earlier today, Russia's ambassador to the United Nations said he does not support international calls for a demilitarized zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Elsewhere in Ukraine, residents of Kharkiv continue to come under heavy shelling with people reporting missiles striking a crowded neighborhood Thursday. There are no military vehicles here. It's the center of Kharkiv. People live here. It's usually very quiet, with no military objects nearby. I have no idea why our yard was shelled. Meanwhile, Russia's foreign ministry has acknowledged for the first time it's negotiating with the Biden administration for a prisoner swap that could see jailed U.S. citizens Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan freed from Russian penal colonies. President Biden said the news left him hopeful a prisoner swap could soon be completed. The Pentagon says it carried out three airstrikes in Somalia Tuesday that killed four al-Shabaab fighters. It was the second time in recent weeks that U.S. Central Command announced airstrikes in Somalia. Elsewhere, five people were killed and 100 others injured Thursday as Somali government forces clashed with demonstrators in towns across the breakaway region of Somaliland. Witnesses said security forces used clubs and live fire to attack protesters who were calling on the Somali leader, Musbihi Abdi, not to delay presidential elections in November. This comes as the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees said it recently registered the one millionth person displaced by Somalia's devastating drought, which has led to widespread crop failure and the death of livestock since January 2021. The UN says the number of Somalis facing hunger is expected to rise to more than 7 million in the coming months due to the effects of the climate crisis and rising food prices caused by the Russian war on Ukraine. In southwestern France, more than 10,000 people have been forced to evacuate a massive wildfire that continues to burn out of control near the city of Bordeaux. Firefighters from Austria, Greece, Germany, Poland, and Romania have joined some 10,000 French firefighters battling the blaze. This comes as much of Europe continues to bake in an unprecedented heat wave. Meanwhile, wildfires are raging in central Portugal and parts of the United Kingdom are again under an extreme heat warning. In Brazil... Thousands of people took to the streets of cities across the country Thursday in defense of democracy after far-right President Jair Bolsonaro threatened to reject the results of October's first-round presidential election if he loses. Former leftist Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who is running again, currently leads in the polls. Bolsonaro has been claiming without evidence Brazil's electronic voting system is vulnerable. My caption is too long. Horrible. 
This is a protester in Rio de Janeiro. We are here to ask for free elections, free education, and improvements for our people, because our people cannot be dying of hunger. In more news from Brazil, police have arrested another five people linked to the June murders of British journalist Dom Phillips and Brazilian indigenous rights advocate Bruno Pereira. Authorities also identified one of the suspects in the murder as the leader of an illegal fishing organized crime group in the Amazon region. Phillips and Pereira went missing in Brazil's Javari Valley in June. Their remains were found dismembered about two weeks later. You can go to democracynow.org to see our interview with indigenous lawyer. Eliasio Maruba in Brasilia about calls to independently investigate their murders. And the San Francisco Chronicle reports at least seven employees with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office have resigned since Brooke Jenkins was appointed DA in July. She replaced former progressive DA Chase Boudin, who was ousted by voters in June in a multi-million dollar funded special recall election led by the real estate industry. Fifteen other staff members were fired following the recall election. Jenkins said she volunteered in Boudin's recall efforts, but it has now been revealed that she received over $100,000 as a consultant for a nonprofit called Neighbors for a Better San Francisco linked to efforts targeting Boudin, who aimed to reform the criminal justice system but faced mounting attacks by the real estate industry. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Monday will mark one year since the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan as the U.S. withdrew troops nearly two decades after the 2001 U.S. invasion. Afghanistan today is facing what the United Nations says is the world's largest humanitarian disaster with more than half the country's residents facing starvation. Meanwhile, the Taliban continues to crack down on human rights and has barred girls from attending high school for the past year. The Taliban is also facing accusations of harboring leaders of al-Qaeda. Last week, the United States announced it had killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in a drone strike in downtown Kabul. This all comes as Afghanistan is facing a dire economic crisis, in part because the Biden administration sees $7 billion of Afghanistan foreign reserves held in U.S. banks. We're joined now by the award-winning reporter Matthew Akins, who's reported on Afghanistan since 2008. He was in Kabul last year when the city fell to the Taliban and he returned to Afghanistan in May to report on current conditions. He's just written a piece for the New York Times magazine titled The Taliban's Dangerous Collision Course with the West. Earlier this year, Matt Akins published his first book, The Naked Don't Fear the Water, An Underground Journey with Afghan Refugees. Matt Akins, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you lay out your findings as we mark this first year of Afghanistan's fall to the Taliban? Well, hi, Amy. Thanks for having me, as always. I went back in order to understand what had happened during the Taliban's first year in power. And as you recall, the girls' school issue was really a litmus test for whether they had changed, whether they would govern differently this time than they did during their first government in the 90s, where they didn't allow women to be educated. And they did allow girls to go back to elementary schools, to universities, but they hadn't opened the girls' public high schools yet. They had promised to do so. Um, they said it was just temporary. And 
this is going to happen on March 23rd, which is the first day of class for Afghan schools. And the girls went to school. They were filmed going to class because it's supposed to be a hopeful day. And then word came out that day that no, the schools wouldn't open. The girls were sent home crying. It was uh, an embarrassing debacle for the government. And I remember at the time not just being, not only being very disappointed and heartbroken, but but baffled. Why would the Taliban change their mind at the last minute like this? So that's what I went back to find out. And in my interviews and meetings with Taliban officials in Kabul, including at the education ministry, what I actually discovered was that many of them had been in favor of reopening the girls' schools. They saw it, you know, as something that was very much in their interest, um, not, not least because the international community was, you know, spending billions of dollars to avert humanitarian disaster in Afghanistan. So they had prepared a plan to reopen the schools, but at the last minute, word came from Kandahar uh, that the schools would not reopen because it turned out that it wasn't really up to the officials in Kabul. The true power of the movement lies in Kandahar with the Supreme Leader and the Leadership Council. So who really controls um, what's happening in Afghanistan within the Taliban? Well, you know, it's really interesting how mysterious and opaque some of this decision making is even some of the senior taliban officials that i spoke to you know admitted to me in private that they weren't fully sure how these decisions were being made or what exactly the role of the supreme leader sheikh haibatullah was but in essence the to understand how power works in the taliban you have to look back at the first government in the 90s when you had sort of two governments. You had the formal cabinet in Kabul, and then you had another government led by the then the Supreme Leader, Mullah Omar, who never left Kandahar, who stayed in Kandahar and governed with a close council or shura of other senior Taliban leaders, a kind of shadow government. Now that became the leadership of the insurgency for the last 20 years when they went underground. Pakistan became known as the Quetta Shura. And then after the Taliban suddenly seized power last summer, which is something that surprised even them, um, that government became grafted onto the current Kabul administration. So you have the supreme leader in Kandahar, you have a small group around him that operates based on a consensus, and some of the hardliners in that group who were opposed to reopening girls' schools essentially were able to block what much of the officials in, in Kabul, uh, including some of the deputies like Siraj Haqqani, uh, Mullah uh, Yaqub, the defense minister, they were in favor of reopening girls' schools, but the hardliners, in essence, blocked it. Talk about Afghanistan overall, Kabul and the more rural areas and what this divide looks like, how it's playing out. And then we'll get into this humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, uh, perhaps the worst in the world as so much of the country faces hunger. So... The Taliban, again, in their first government in the 90s, they were really trying to bring back this idea of the virtuous village lifestyle. This is a time of chaos and corruption in the Civil War. And in these rural villages, which are very conservative, particularly in the South, in Pashtun areas, women don't really leave the house. It's a very strictly gender-segregated society. And this is the model that they tried to impose across Afghan society as a whole in the 90s with a lot of repression and brutality. And today, 
there's a battle playing out within the movement over whether that vision still holds. And the fact of the matter is that even if the Taliban haven't changed, Afghan society has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. You know, millions of girls have gone to school and been educated. Their families have seen the benefits of that education. And some of the more pragmatic Taliban that I spoke to in Kabul, they really understand that that reality has changed and they are trying to adapt as well. They have their own strict Islamist vision, but they see that girls can go to school, they can go to the office as long as they're veiled, as long as they're separated from men. So that is essentially the tension between, you could say, the city and the countryside that's playing out within the Taliban movement itself. And unfortunately for now, we see the hardliners have won. But it is important to remember that there's, there is, uh, you know, these internal dynamics within the movement that hopefully could lead to more reform in the future. According to the United Nations, nearly 1.1 million Afghan children under the age of five are expected to experience severe malnutrition this year. This is Melanie Galvin, the chief of nutrition at UNICEF, speaking in Kabul. I think we need, in the longer term, we're still going to need a great deal of funding to just treat these children. In 2023, I will have a problem, I will have a gap in, in supply, for example, if there isn't um, additional resources that come into the country. So we've done everything we can with the donations we've had, and we're so grateful for them. Um, but this need will continue. It's not going to stop. So according to the UN, half the population faces hunger. Talk about the resources the Taliban have access to. Uh, for example, the U.S. freezing billions of dollars of Afghan money and what that means, how that plays out in Afghanistan. Sure. Well, I think it's important to understand that even though the U.S. and its allies spent more than $100 billion on development aid in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. It remained one of the poorest and most aid-dependent countries in the world. And that was in part due to all the corruption that flourished with this uncontrolled spending, much of it by contractors. And so when that aid was suddenly cut off after the Taliban seized power last August, it had the predictable consequence of causing an economic collapse. Government salaries are going unpaid, teachers, medical workers... So the country is now facing a dire economic crisis. Um, it's being kept on humanitarian life support by a massive humanitarian surge. There's now more aid workers working for these agencies in Afghanistan today than there was before. Uh, the collapse of the government last August, the withdrawal of U.S. forces. And that means that the U.S. and its allies are actually funding and, and, and these humanitarian efforts are cooperating with the Taliban. But of course, the U.S. did also seize the Afghan bank assets that were held uh, in the U.S., $7 billion, and they've earmarked half of that for victims of 9-11 and their families. Now, that puts the U.S. in a funny position because it, it is so once both uh, the largest funder of humanitarian efforts in Afghanistan and one of the main causes of the humanitarian crisis with these sanctions. So what is the U.S. doing with that money? Right now, it's on ice, and there's talk about um, returning the other three and a half billion dollars to the Afghan, you know, to Afghans. Now they haven't; they're not going to give it to the Taliban, but they're in negotiations right now to set up maybe some sort of trust fund or something like that that could be used to recapitalize the financial sector. But one of the big problems facing Afghanistan today is that its economy is paralyzed by these sanctions um, and a lot of other knock-on effects 
you know, other banks don't want to do business with Afghan banks because of some very genuine concerns, for example, over terrorism and money laundering. But what that means, in essence, is that the Afghan economy isn't able to stand on its own feet. Uh, it's dependent right now on external aid. The UN is actually flying in pallets of $100 bills more than a billion dollars to date that they're flying into Kabul and that's essentially keeping the economy on life support but you know one of the interesting things that I realized after this last year since the collapse of the republic is that in a sense for the U.S. and its allies the crisis in Afghanistan has been contained somewhat you know it's been contained with this massive humanitarian surge through these agencies that are cleaning up after political messes not just in Afghanistan but in places like Somalia uh, or Yemen it's it's feeding Afghans hand to mouth the migration flows of you know refugees to Europe have been contained by all the border walls that have helped cage Afghans inside this, their country. So even despite the massive suffering in Afghanistan, I think that there's a sense it's been contained. And in a, in, a, in a strange way, the Taliban have played a stabilizing role in that. And I think there's been an actual a normalization of the relationships with a lot of countries in the region who see the Taliban as possibly just keeping a lid on things in Afghanistan. Talk about the U.S. drone killing of Zawahri. Were you surprised by this, the uh, killing of the al-Qaeda leader? Um, and the uh, fact that he was in a house owned by Qatani and what that means? Yeah, I mean, I, I used to go jogging basically right by that street when I, every morning when I was in Kabul. The mornings I got up early enough anyways. And it's, so it's right in the middle of the city. And it was surprising to see the drone strike there in the house that used to be rented by uh, U.S. aid contractors, actually, and in an area that was occupied by warlords after 2001. But this really does show the limits of that, that, that containment strategy that I just spoke about. And the fact of the matter is that if, the, if Afghanistan again becomes a threat to its neighbors, as it did in the 90s because of groups like al-Qaeda, then you could see a, you know intervention uh, on the side of the armed resistance of the Taliban that could spark a new cycle of the civil war. Um, but at the same time, I do think that it's important to remember that these groups have a long-standing relation with the Taliban. Uh, they got closer, actually, when they jointly resisted the U.S. occupation of the last 20 years. And so the Taliban kind of are in kind of a tricky place where they, they can't reject these groups, um, but they, they can't send them elsewhere, obviously. So it's possible that by keeping Zawahri it was a way of keeping him um, under supervision, but we really don't know the details. I was told by a senior U.S. official that according to their information, much of the Taliban leadership was actually unaware that al-Zawahri was in Kabul and that it was a work of a faction connected to Haqqani, the interior ministry, um, in sheltering him. Again, um, uh, Akhani is the is the interior minister. That's right. Yeah, Sarajuddin Akhani, who is you know long been held to be uh, one of the fiercest opponents of the U.S., responsible for many attacks, is designated as a as a terrorist by the FBI, has a bounty on his head, and also happens to be one of the most socially quote unquote progressive of the Taliban. Uh, he and the group around him who, who occupy many ministries in Kabul uh, have been some of the most vocal proponents of letting the girls go back to school, have helped out a lot of aid agencies and they've had trouble with other elements of the Taliban over their female workers. So it just shows the, the very difficult contradictions at play in the country and I think the need for understanding better the dynamics there. 
Um, finally, you spend a good amount of time in your piece uh, highlighting maternal health care. The Taliban has a contradiction because on the one hand, uh, many in the leadership, a number, don't want girls and women educated, but they only allow women doctors and nurses to deal with women in maternity hospitals. Talk about this. Yeah, so that's the, 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 the irony, in essence, because they only need women to deal with women. Um, they need women doctors, which means you need women teachers. And so there will always be this core of educated Afghan women. Even in the 90s, the Taliban you know, allowed doctors, female doctors, to continue working in, in some areas. So today you have women working. You have a lot of women working in Afghanistan. I thought that was important to show. I went to this hospital, which is being supported by the, the Red Cross, the ICRC, and I met these women doctors who are doing you know, heroic, life-saving work. They're, they're helping women who are coming in now from more distant rural areas because there's peace in Afghanistan, at least. There's, there's, there's security on the roads. And so women are coming in in really rough condition from places that, where they would have just died at home. They're saving their lives. These women are working hard. But the fact of the matter is, is if you don't allow girls to go back to high school, then you're not going to have girls in university. You're not going to have girls in medical school. And eventually this pipeline of Afghanistan's nurses and doctors, um, women doctors, are going is going to run out. And so that's really, I think, the most compelling reason. It's not for international aid or Western approval that the Taliban should allow girls to go back to school. It's for their own country's interests. It's for the sake of their own daughters. And I think that there are some people in the Taliban who understand that. Uh, they've been blocked by the hardliners. But we can, we can only hope that, um, especially with internal pressure from the many Afghans who are, who are speaking up in favor of women's rights, that they will see the light and allow the girls to go back to school. Finally, Matthew Aikens, um, 20 years, more than 20 years after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, they left and left it, would you say, in worse shape than the U.S. when they invaded Afghanistan? And how do Afghans feel about this? Look, I, I think it's unfair to say that it's in worse shape than it was in 2001 when the country was ravaged, destroyed, impoverished. There have been a lot of gains over the last 20 years. Afghans have you know, rebuilt their country themselves, but it came at such a high price in terms of bloodshed and suffering, the, the damage that the war did to the fabric of society, the, the refugees. So the fact of the matter is that today Afghanistan is again in crisis, but we don't have the same tools to deal with them. We're not occupying it anymore militarily. Afghan girls are no longer the poster ch children for our war there. And there's a limit to what we can accomplish, but I don't think that means that our our obligation to the country has disappeared. I think that we still need to keep the spotlight on Afghanistan. We still need to do all that we can to support Afghans outside the country and, and especially inside the country who are uh, still struggling and that includes the girls who want to go to high school and so we absolutely need to to keep our relationship alive with this country matthew akins contributing writer for the new york times magazine author of the naked don't fear the water an underground journey with afghan refugees will link to your new article the taliban's dangerous collision course with the west Coming up, a jury in California is convicted a former Twitter worker of spying for Saudi Arabia by providing the kingdom private information about Saudi dissidents. We'll speak with the sister of an imprisoned Saudi man who was tortured and jailed for running a satirical Twitter account. It was anonymous. Stay with us. Mm -hmm.
show. Yeah, as you can tell, um, this is great. I mean, it's very awesome. And I think I accidentally just turned her off. So. Find uh, find out uh, where we left off. This is Friday, August 12th. Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of America. No, Arizona. Aridstona. Now that we've gone recreational. Nurses and doctors. Um, I didn't know that about the um, that they had allowed <coughs> women doctors to uh, practice under the Taliban. That's interesting to me because uh, apparently in, in um, it's, it's good. one of the reasons it's good to be a doctor, that and a fool, <laughs> a comedian. Uh, comedian and a doctor, those are kind of the safest professions to be, um, to get a pass from society. That rhymes. Doctor and a fool. Those are the safest. <laughs> Strongly recommend. Please donate to Democracy Now. Amy Goodman. One about about the only um, reasonable, dependable, reliable. Truly, well, sure, the it's got a leftist um, choice of subjects, but those are the ones that are always left out, aren't they? And that's because we have corporate media monopoly in this country. We have corporate media monopoly, whereby five corporations own all of our media. So what are you going to do about it, America? America, you're so strong. Yeah, strong smelling. Uh, That'll be a good... Uh, here we go. Oh man. I think I need to open up its own special. That's what you should do. Just, uh, just open up another 25th new tab. Okay. It says Michael Cohen says he would not be surprised if FBI informants was one of Trump's kids. 
or Jared Kushner. Huh? Why would he? FBI, which which one? Which FBI comments? <clears throat> I'm a huge Michael Cohen fan, so um, and I strongly recommend. I cover his podcast. I cover his podcast. So Mea culpa. This is my main culpa. Oh baby, don't love me. If I tell you my story, don't let, don't grab me. That's the best podcast in the planet. I've given him a cyber trophy, a virtual trophy. For best podcast on the planet. It's a good idea to still make him a little trophy. <laughs> um, and uh, also, I cover Midas Touch. That's how I heard about my. Michael Cohen's podcast, and Michael Cohen generously is, uh, you know, talking about the, you know, this is the start of a movement. Thank God, Hallelujah! Finally, the movement has arrived. <laughs> um, <clears throat> pro-democracy movement. That's what I call it. Uh, Lincoln Project's Mary L. Trump podcast and Politics School Legal AF one of my faves I mean like they're all my faves all of the Bulwark I found Bulwark what's your favorite what's your favorite lefty so called lefty podcast I'm going to check out the Glenn Kirshner Justice Matters, I think it's called. That should be pretty bitchin' stuff. Bitchin' bitchin' shit. (laughs) Bitchin' shit. Um, you know how... Phila Kuchi had an album called Expensive Shit. So I think that would be cool to have maybe a comedy album called Bitchin' Shit. Good name for comedy album, I would say. Anyway, um... That definitely dates you. Valley girl, Valley girl. Um, I'm so sure. Valley girl. Song, the real song actually wasn't as good as as the meme. 
my god, get me on spoon. Dude Valley. Oh my god, so sharp. <laughs> Her butt. Her butt. So big. Oh my god. <laughs> Valley Girl Challenge. God. Oh my god. Gagging spin. That's pretty good. <laughs> that barked me out. <laughs> Bark me out. I'm so shocked. 